This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Dr. Bennett, would you care to begin? Sure. Thank you very much. We've recently completed uh, a report on alternative paths to Korean unification. The subject of Korean unification, especially in Korea, is uh, tremendously popular. It has a tremendous amount of literature that's been written about it. It's been something that the Koreas have pursued uh, with interest for uh, almost 70 years, and uh, yet I would argue that there are several major problems with the existing literature, and these are part of what helped motivate uh, the study in the first place. The first problem with the current literature is that it tends to focus on peaceful unification. That's not to argue that peaceful unification is impossible, though I will talk about that in a bit, uh, but rather that alternative forms of unification through either conflict or a change in the North Korean government are also possible and need more attention. My second concern is usually once people start talking about Korean unification, they assume that once the process begins, it will go smoothly, there will be no major challenges. Uh, given the differences between the two Koreas, I think that's relatively questionable. Uh, if, for example, there is some form of military action that goes on for either the South to take control of the North or vice versa, uh, it is likely that an insurgency will develop and that other difficulties will develop as a result. My third concern is that there's almost no consideration of North Korea-led unification, where the North actually is in control of the unification process. While this may seem to be unlikely and improbable, uh, the reality is that this seems to be what Kim Jong-un is interested in. In Kim's New Year's Day address, which is his State of the Union address for 2018, he talks about unification a dozen times. And he's not talking about South Korea-led unification. He's talking about North Korea-led unification. And so... As, as several of the alternative paths that I consider, I look at cases where North Korea could actually lead the unification process. Now, in this introduction, I've identified three contexts for unification. War, a change in the, uh, in the North Korean regime, and a peaceful unification. I am assuming that a peaceful unification means no change in the North Korean government, that Kim Jong-un still is the leader of North Korea, still is in control of the government, and therefore the peaceful unification is negotiated directly with him. If instead there is a regime change, that fits in my regime change category. Among those three contexts, I identify nine paths that are possible. And I also identify seven challenges to unification, the most important of which, of course, are North Korean weapons of mass destruction and potential Chinese intervention. If you look at the warfare cases as a starting point, 
I don't look at these in terms of a detailed scenario. I rather say if a war occurs, either the North will win and take over the unified country, the South will win and take over the unified country, or neither side will be in a position to do that, in which case it's not a unification and it's beyond the scope of this activity. So with those two cases, looking at a war, we have to recognize that North Korean weapons of mass destruction and their nuclear weapons in particular totally change the potential for a war leading to a stable unification. North Korea with a single nuclear weapon dropped on Seoul could kill or seriously injure half a million people, even with the smaller nuclear weapons that it was testing before its most recent test. With the most recent test that North Korea did in September of 2017, the weapon that exploded at that time could potentially lead to the deaths or serious injury of, in roughly speaking, three million people in Seoul. That kind of damage is very difficult to recover from. And that's only one of the North Korean weapons, which are estimated to be somewhere between 15 to 20 by many North Korean experts, but reportedly the intelligence community talks about 30 to 60. Any of those numbers could lead to just substantial damage that would completely change the nature of, of the society. So while I look at the uh, warfare paths, my conclusion with them is they're not attractive. That's not something we want to pursue. We'd really prefer to avoid them. The second context, which I'll talk about, is the peaceful paths. Now, this is clearly the path that uh, South Korean President Moon is trying to pursue now. Again, I'm less concerned with the details of the path and more concerned with who comes out to be in control. So I consider a case where North Korea is actually in control after the peaceful unification, where South Korea is, or where there is some degree of shared control. Um, among those cases, I would have to argue that South Korea is totally unwilling to accept a peaceful unification under North Korean control. Every time I mention that to my South Korean colleagues, they laugh me off and say, that will never happen. Similarly, South Korean control, which is usually what we think of when we think of a peaceful unification, is something that would be totally unacceptable to Kim Jong-un. Uh, as the leader of North Korea, he knows that if South Korea is in control of the unification, it's a disaster for him and his family and his control. So that's unlikely. Well, what about a shared control situation with a peaceful unification? Well, the first question you have to ask is, who's going to be compromising? For example, will Kim Jong-un compromise and allow North Korea to totally open up to outside information the way that South Korea is? so that your unified society is clearly unified. The problem is Kim is never going to do that. 
that would too much jeopardize any remaining influence and control he has. Similarly, you could ask, well, maybe then South Korea needs to give up their free access to information, shut them off, all of the South Koreans from the Internet, make it like North Korea, where they are totally controlled and, and managed. That's not going to work in South Korea. So coming up with an end state, even from a balanced unification, even on the simple issue of information, it's hard to see where you get there. I therefore consider regime change cases. That's my third context. A regime change case, the historical one we think about is there's a collapse of the Kim family regime, probably due to internal uh, actions. Kim then is gone and uh, chaos starts developing in the country. So South Korea goes into the north with military force to try to stabilize it, bringing along U.S. forces. The problem in that scenario is many North Korean military people would likely oppose that South Korean action, and we could return to a war-like condition where if even only a few nuclear weapons go off in South Korea, it could be a disaster. The alternative is trying to act quickly when Kim Jong-un would likely be replaced by some member of his senior elites. The good news is most of these people today probably ought to be called capitalists. Beginning during the famine in the 1990s, the North Korean elites recognized that they could go out and do business and gain more control on their own lives. And that's what many of them have done. So many of the senior leaders in North Korea are very much involved in the markets, making money, living a better life. That means that if you have someone from that group who takes over the leadership in North Korea, He's someone that the South Korean president and authorities can negotiate with. Not that unification will occur likely very quickly in that situation, but it could certainly develop over time, perhaps 5 or 10 or 20 years, with someone who's prepared to adjust in the North initially to a Chinese-like economic system, but eventually to come closer to South Korea and work through a series of steps to unification. I therefore consider that to be the most likely case of unification and the preferred case. And I conclude that we need to avoid war, we need to try to prepare for that case, but to do that the South needs a more North Korea friendly approach to unification. Today South Korea has a commission that they've set up with individuals they have chosen to become the governors of North Korea upon unification. That's not particularly acceptable to the North Korean elites. If you want a peaceful unification, you've got to have something acceptable to both sides. And so some adjustments in those kinds of arrangements are needed, as well as in transitional justice, how justice is handled, how property rights are handled, and so forth. And those issues need to be worked now so that the North Koreans are prepared to think that unification could actually work out for them. 
that's an overview of the study, and I would be happy to take questions. I have a question for you. I was kind of surprised that, that unification remains uh, a hot topic over in Korea because you just don't see a lot of that uh, being discussed in uh, Western media. Yeah, the, the approach of the current president who came in in May of 2017 has been a focus on peaceful coexistence. He's not pushing towards uh, unification. Ironically, when he met the first time with Kim Jong-un on April 27th, the declaration that uh, Kim and President Moon made uh, is a declaration which includes in its title the word unification, but nowhere else in the, in the document is the word unification included. So this is a very gradual transition to coexistence uh, peaceful coexistence that doesn't necessarily lead to a formal unification, at least in the immediate future. Um, it's something, therefore, that there's not been as much attention to. Um, in fact, the key document written on peaceful coexistence is written by the South Korean Ministry of Unification. It's the counterpart to one of our cabinet positions. Uh, and their document is about relations with North Korea and talking about peaceful coexistence as being the key. So there's not the push that the previous two presidents had in terms of unification in South Korea. This is uh, Matthew Hoosier with the Kiplinger Letter. Um, I guess I'm curious, uh, given uh, you know, some of these efforts to, uh, to reach peaceful coexistence between the two Koreas, I guess, where you see, uh, how you see, North, how does North Korea view these efforts? Are, are these, does Kim take uh, these efforts seriously, or is this more part of a kind of a PR campaign, shall we say, as maybe part of the broader nuclear negotiations with, with the U.S.? We really don't know. Uh, there are several alternative uh, Kims that could be making decisions at the current point in time. Um, it could be that he's taking this very seriously and hopeful that he's going to uh, achieve a good outcome. Uh, but if he is, as I said before, he's looking for a North Korea-led unification, not a South Korea-led unification. And that means that what he's trying to do is, through negotiations and other actions, create conditions where, in the end, he could control the outcome. That's difficult for North Korea to do. Um, but if that's where he's, if he's really serious, that's where he's likely headed. If alternatively, all he's trying to do is to stall the United States and. Uh, develop a nuclear capability by which he can threaten the United States so that we have to take him far more seriously, um, then he's just biding time. He's not serious about that. He's looking for unification eventually by forcing the South Koreans to kick American troops out of South Korea, to break our alliance, to end our nuclear umbrella, and to gradually gain control of the South. So we don't know which Kim it is, but in either case, uh, it's a case where he is interested in controlling the unification, uh, not the South. Thank you. Certainly. 
I was just going to answer, ask a question. This is Korshid in while well, we're waiting for another sure. question. Just, I'm curious because perusing your report, obviously there are scenarios that are more beneficial for the United States um, as far as unification, and you indicated that actually the best scenario would be if the North were defeated and or or uh, there was a regime change and then the 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 Republic of Korea and the United States would work together to um basically bring the the two nations and re reunify them is that, can mm -hmm. you elaborate on that sure um as i said earlier there's no good outcome from warfare uh if you get only two or three nuclear weapons going off in South Korea, a couple in the United States. Um, nobody wants that kind of outcome. So we ought to try to avoid warfare. North Korea may not allow us to avoid warfare, so we have to be prepared to deal with that case. But if we can, avoiding it is ideal. That's what we ought to strive for. Um, and if we avoid warfare, the best case is one where Kim Jong-un goes away. Kim is so adamant about preventing information from getting into the North, maintaining absolute control on people in the North. He is extraordinarily brutal, um, probably has 100,000 or so people in political prison camps in the North. Um, this is a regime the likes of which it's very difficult to consider some kind of peaceful unification. And so um, we have to be thinking, how do we then proceed? The best procedure is for Kim to go away because his likely replacement would be someone who there's much more chance we could negotiate with. It's not a case where the U.S. should be trying to make him go away. Um, there appears to be plentiful unhappiness among the elites in North Korea based upon the contacts I have among elite defectors and others. Um, Kim has made some major mistakes. Korea is, by culture, an extraordinarily family-oriented society. And yet he's been going around killing many of the elites, uncles, nephews, cousins, um, which has infuriated many of the elites who have had family they've lost. Um, there is unhappiness there. They're scared to death to do anything about it now, but sooner or later you could have an outcome as occurred in Romania at the end of the Cold War where the dictator was simply overthrown. Um, and that's exactly what Kim worries about, why he is so brutal. But the reality is sooner or later, it may well catch up with him. And that's the case where if he's gone, we can likely negotiate and get a favorable outcome because those replacement people over time will develop trust with the South. I'm doubtful that Kim will ever develop trust with the South uh, because of his perspective. Thank you, Bruce. Mm -hmm. Where are we at currently vis-a-vis uh, -vis China? Mm -hmm. Has China expressed any 
shifting opinion as to how they're going to deal with their little client? Well, China has established a couple of interesting policies with regard to Korea. On the one hand, it is said that it, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, has said he favors Korean unification. He thinks a peaceful unification of Korea would be a good thing. Um, on the other hand, he said if there is conflict in Korea and North Korea starts it, he has no role in helping North Korea get itself out of such a quandary. Uh, but if it's the U.S. that starts it, then he would still support North Korea. So we face a challenge with regard to potential Chinese intervention. Uh, the Chinese could intervene if there were a bloody nose strike, for example. Seems to be what they're saying. It's the possibility. Alternatively, if the regime collapses, the Chinese could also intervene worried about a flood of refugees into China. And so the potential for Chinese action is, is key. That means we need to be very prepared for unification and in particular need to have been trying to help the North Korean elite see that they do have a possibility in unification with the South um, that they will continue in, in most cases, their positions, doing what they do. Of course, those responsible for serious crimes should still be arrested and tried. But many of the bureaucrats, they need to be retained or else they'll never agree to a unification. So that's the kind of situation that we face. Bruce, I have another question that's a little bit off the cuff. Sure. Um, Kim Jong-un's sister seems to play some type of role and as we saw her present at, at the Olympics. What what is her role? Is she does she actually have a certifiable role or future in the political sphere or is it more of a show of family unity? She does clearly play a role within uh, the regime. The senior defectors who I talk with say that uh, she is one of three major advisors to Kim Jong-un. She seems to have a sense for South Korean culture and society to some extent, and therefore able to advise him. Um, but if Kim is suddenly gone, it's less likely that she is a player for taking his place. Um, uh, Korean culture from all the Koreans I talked to, isn't quite ready in North Korea for that kind of transition. Um, and so it's usually anticipated that if Kim Jong-un is gone, his oldest child is probably only uh, 10 to 12. Uh, young young uh, would not be in a position to take power himself, might take it under control of somebody else but it's likely not to be a Kim family member who really controls any transition. Thank you, Bruce. Mm-hmm. What exactly would be the advantages to South Korea of unification? I mean, the North, the population, a lot of them are starving. They're not as technologically advanced as the South. What would be gained? Yeah. The, the gain is in part cultural. The Korean people tend to have a feeling 
that they should be unified, that they are one people. And so uh, culturally, they feel like that's an important thing to do. Uh, president Park, the previous president of South Korea, also argued that unification would be a bonanza for the Koreas. Uh, in part, that's because it is believed that North Korea has something in the ballpark of $6 trillion of mineral wealth. Um, that's a lot of wealth. The North is not able to do much about it because they don't have the resources to extract that mineral wealth, but that would be very valuable. President Park was also interested in just the labor force of North Korea. Very serious people, quite prepared to work hard and to be productive, and at a lower wage level, at least initially, than the South, though that has its complications uh, in terms of culturally treating them as being second-class laborers. So there are some challenges in making all of that work, but there's the economics that appears attractive and so forth. The difficulty you would face, though, in making all of that happen is as soon as a unification occurred without warfare, uh, many North Koreans are probably going to make their way towards the demilitarized zone, planning to cross into South Korea to get really good jobs that they aren't going to be able to get in North Korea. Um, that flood of people would potentially undermine the South Korean labor unions. They would be furious that they could come in and underbid their salaries. That's something that uh, would cause real problems in the South, plus there's not housing for those people, health care would be an issue, and so forth. So uh, there are also some real issues of how do you manage such a unification in order to come out with any real advantage economically. Because it has to be a win-win for both sides. Exactly. Hello, this is uh, Matthew from Kiplinger. Um, I guess just as my last question, I, I wanted to quick ask uh, maybe some of the best historical analogies that we can use to, to think about this particular issue, both in terms of the future of the Kim family being in charge of North Korea and uh, the issue of reunification uh, more generally. You mentioned Romania. Obviously, Germany is the most, uh, the most recent example of you know, two, two, a split country reunifying. Uh, maybe could you talk through some of the, the, some of the uh, past examples you've used to think through this issue? Sure. Um, the German case is the one that is typically talked about in Korea. The problem with the German case is, uh, well, there are several problems with it. First of all, the difference in uh, GDP per capita, your economic status, in Germany was about three to one west to east Germany. Uh, in Korea, it's like 15 to one. Uh, there is not the education in the, in the north except among the elites. Um, there's just really a very strong difference in, in that. And the people in east Germany wanted German unification. They thought this was going to be really good for them not so clear that that's the feeling in Korea, especially among the elites. They're pretty sure that they're going to be thrown in prison um, and that it's going to be a disaster for them. 
So, and that's what the regime tells them. So um, the German case gives us a lot of issues that we need to focus on. Uh, the Germans did apparently use a fair amount of uh, amnesty in dealing with people from East Germany. Um, that helped make things smoother. But they had real difficulties with property rights. They failed to come up with a good way of dealing with property because, of course, in East Germany, as in North Korea, property was owned by the state. So how do you decide who it goes to in a free society? Um, and uh, 20 years later, there were still major court cases going on in Germany to try to settle property rights. Well, if you don't own clearly property, you're debating it in the courts, nothing's being done to maintain that property more than likely, that's really disastrous for society. Um, so there are some good examples and some challenges in the German case. Um, the other major challenge in the German case that's different, the German military was much, the East German military was much smaller than the West German military. Um, about two to three to one uh, in terms of favoring the West Germans. In uh, North Korea, the military today is over two to one compared to, uh, to South Korea. And uh, with South Korea's reductions that are upcoming, uh, it's going to go to two and a half to one and maybe eventually three to one that the North Korean military is so much bigger. That produces a whole lot of people who, if they're not satisfied, could become rebels after unification. The case the North Koreans like is the Vietnam case. They love the idea of North Korea taking over South Korea just like North Vietnam took over South Vietnam. And in 20 years, the Americans are doing lots of business with them and they're getting wealthy and it's really going great. Um, so that's the case you'll hear among North Korean regime members. Um, the Romania case, as I said, is a case of a leader who went too far and was overthrown. That's what Kim worries about. Um, and you have other cases like that in transitions. Um, so it's really tricky to come up with an acceptable case for Kim Jong-un, almost impossible. Uh, for him to find a good way to get where he wants to go. I want to hear some more about the uh, comparisons of the two militaries. Now, you said the North Korean military is, of course, so much bigger. But in terms of technology, in terms of training, uh, doesn't the South have more of an advantage? Well, and the answer to that question is yes and no. Um, Part of the problem the South Korean military has is it has a very low military budget. They're running ballpark about $40 billion this year for their military budget. That's uh, about 7% of the U.S. military budget today for a military force which is roughly half the size of the U.S. military. So in many cases, they bought some more capable systems, certainly Compared to North Korea, they have higher technologies, but not as many as you might think. And in many cases, they just don't have a lot of the basics. Not a lot of, uh, of machine guns, for example, down with their infantry forces. 
they just don't rival the way the North Koreans provide weapons for their people at that kind of level. Um, so there are differences there in training. Um, the training, of course, of the South Koreans tends to be pretty good. They, uh, they have a lot of independence, which the U.S. military uh, thinks that, you know, our sergeants and lieutenants should be able to take the initiative and do what the commander wants them to. The North does not have that kind of system. They're going to be much more dependent on getting orders from above, and that means if you get disconnected communications-wise, hard to tell what's going to happen. So um, there are challenges uh, for the North in that regard. But then when you add in the North Korean weapons of mass destruction, things become very worrisome. Uh, you can do a whole lot of damage with a small number of nuclear weapons, but also with chemical and biological weapons. And biological weapons are really ideal for the, South, or for the North Korean special forces, which you know, North Korea has some 200,000 special forces, according to their characterization. And certainly they're not the same as our special forces uh, in terms of training for everyone. But still, with biological weapons, they could become pretty worrisome. And even without that, their better people would be a challenge. So the, there are advantages and disadvantages on both sides. And pretty hard to predict what would happen. It, very difficult to predict what would happen, especially once nuclear weapons start going off. If there aren't any other questions from the attending reporters, Bruce, would you like to make a closing statement on actually some of the latest developments that have been in the news? Certainly. Uh, you know, you look at the situation with North Korea, and North Korea has recently been absolutely furious that uh, the United States would not give them sanctions relief. When President Trump has been quite clear that they can have sanctions relief when they've uh, completed their denuclearization, what we tend to miss is the fact that North Korea hasn't even started denuclearization. In fact, they've been going in the opposite direction. They've been building more weapons. They haven't surrendered a single one at this point. And they're building bigger weapons, which means their destructive potential is going up very rapidly. Um, this is not a good situation. So while China and Russia appear to think that uh, sanctions ought to be relieved because Kim is talking nicely, um, actions speak louder than words. And Kim hasn't chosen to take even the basics of actions to begin denuclearization. One measures nuclearization usually in terms of the number of nuclear weapons a country has. Um, since he's increasing those, we ought to be increasing economic sanctions, not reducing them, uh, to put more pressure on him. And yes, North Korea has said, well, the sanctions haven't really driven them to the negotiating table. But if that's true, why is Kim complaining so seriously about how he needs to have sanctions relief? So I think the observables suggest sanctions are having an effect. We need to keep them in place and turn them up until at least he freezes his nuclear forces, 
which he could do by stopping production and allowing us to monitor them. At first, he doesn't have to destroy any facilities, but he does have to allow them to be monitored. And then he's got to start giving up nuclear weapons. That's a complicated process in order to avoid any dangers with them, but it's something which we have allies that could help with and uh, something we ought to be doing. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.